Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Nerva Reddy. This is Stephen Robles and we have a special interview episode for you today. Sean McDowell, Biola University professor, also has a part in the Impact 360 camps that Seth and Nerva are a part of, and son of Josh McDowell, well-known speaker and apologist. He's on the show today. Seth did a great interview with Sean, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But first, I want to remind you, of course, about Impact 360. Again, Sean McDowell is involved with Impact 360, those awesome camps, and enrollment is open right now for both Propel and Immersion, a one- and two-week camps put on by Impact 360 every summer for high school students going into college. So we encourage you, if you're a youth minister, student ministry pastor, or you have students that age, encourage you to go to impact360.org and check out those camps that are open right now for enrollment for summer 2020. So go ahead and look forward to that. And now here's the interview with Seth and Sean McDowell. Yes, yeah, so as uh, Stephen was saying, we have the real treat and pleasure of having uh, Dr. Sean McDowell on today. Super excited. Thanks so much for coming on, Sean. Hey, Seth, I'm happy to do it. Love what you guys are doing with the show. And, you know, this is a really uh, kind of a full circle moment for me. And I'm sure I'm sure you get this a lot uh, just, you know, with your dad being who he is. But so when I was growing up in church, you know, I, I began to really, really struggle with doubt in high school, and I was in the kind of a church that didn't really value the intellectual life. And I'll give you a quick story. Uh, in my biology class, I was really wrestling with, you know, how to put together Darwinism in the Bible, and I went to this revivalist who was in town, and I was really worked up the courage to go up to him after service, and I said, man, I'm really struggling with um, evolution and, and Genesis. Is there, what can you, can you help me through this? And he, he just looked at me and said, well, the proof's in the pudding, son, and walked off. And I really still am yet to crack that code, but um, thankfully, my mom around that time found a book by John Weldon and John Ankerberg on Darwinism, one book in the Christian bookstore, and she got it to me. But there was this other guy in our church who I was also wrestling with the historicity of the New Testament and saying, man, how do we even know this stuff is reliable? And he passed me a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. Wow. And I just ravaged that book from cover to cover multiple times and pretty much read everything I could get my hands on by him. And so it's 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 crazy that uh, your dad actually played a key role for me in, in kind of growing in my faith and even sticking with the faith. I don't think I would be here, honestly, today as a Christian without those uh, means of grace that God gave me at the time. So it's just crazy to have now uh, you on here, his son. And uh, I know you guys just recently do, did a new version of Evidence That Demands a Verdict, if I'm not mistaken. And I would uh, just kind of, I would highly recommend that to our readers if you've never, even if you have read those books, to grab that new version. Well, thanks for sharing that story. I do hear that almost everywhere I go, a version <laughs> of that. But you know what? I say that because I don't get tired of it. It just reminds me of the way God has used my dad. I love every story like that that I hear. So thanks for sharing it. Yeah, man. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I, it's, it's, it's just crazy, man. This is one of those full circle moments, like I said, where I'm just like, God is, uh, God is good, man, to let me be able to interview you on this topic. So uh, just to give a little, little bit of a backstory to our listeners, I, I kind of want to go back in time because I think when I reached out to you about doing this podcast, the kind of the purity culture and Josh Harris, it was a, it was a couple weeks ago and so much has happened since then. And that's just the nature of 
of things these days with the news. We're so aware of everything as it happens in real time that we often, by the time we decide to do a story, it's like old news. <laughs> but yeah. I still think there's a lot in this story going back that's worth kind of breaking down and helping people to think through because uh, this is one of these consistent themes I think that keeps coming back up in our culture and it's how to deal with with these items when they happen so even though it's it's moved fast I want to almost like a uh, like an NBA analyst who goes back in the game and says let's look at the first half first and then let's go to the second half and kind of well that, that would be college with halves but I'm gonna say let's go to the first half and, and with the with the purity culture thing because that's when I first started being aware of Josh Harris kind of coming back into the public limelight. And for those of you who don't know, there are a few people who don't know, maybe they live under a rock, I'm not sure, but he wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, and I believe it was 1997. Hugely influential book in the evangelical circles, uh, kind of swept along with other books in the same types of topic uh, about courtship and dating and, and purity and all these types of things became really, really popular and influential. Well, recently he came out and I guess he produced a documentary where he was going back and basically recanting a lot of his ideas that he put out in this book. And I first came across it because I saw uh, evangelical friends who were saying, see this, all this stuff was crazy back then, just like I said. And then I think you, Sean, put up an article a while back from a, a young lady at the Washington Post where she was basically saying, you know, see, this is the problem with purity culture and, and evangelicalism and all this stuff. And she, she, at least in my view, she tended to throw out the baby with the bathwater. But I, I began to think at the time, you know, we should probably talk through what's really going on here because to me at the time it, it felt like an overreaction and and kind of a straw man version of what I remember purity culture being like I, I wasn't I wasn't hugely on board with the whole of the movement but I remember a lot of it not being really that bad but there was kind of this strong reaction to oh man it's causing so much harm causing so much pain so I just want to maybe start on the first half analysis with do we think that reaction was um was the was a proper reaction or is this a little bit overblown and i just want to get your take i know you were around during that time as well sean what what were you thinking a i guess when the purity culture kind of swept through and then as we've been seeing more and more of a backlash to that how do you see that well, i think that's a really interesting question and in some ways we have to keep in mind that partly the way our culture responds to any issue today is to over-dramatize, to pile on, to tweet, to retweet, and to just emphasize in such a strong way the negatives of something. It's like we react with this gut reaction without any measured, balanced response. And that's from a range of voices. It could be, for example, like I have some skeptical atheist buddies who have just been excited to proclaim that Josh Harris is leaving conventional Christianity and divorces his wife, therefore the Christian sexual ethic is dead and false. And I'm like, slow down. That is somebody with an agenda who's just looking to kind of delegitimize Christianity at every turn. So that's over the top. You know, but on the flip side, I watched the uh, documentary you were referring to, Seth. It's called I Survived, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Mm. You know, and there are a number of people that share their stories about they were given this advice and they trusted it, and things didn't work out the way that they were told it would work out. And I think some of the mistakes of purity culture was that they, and we could talk about a lot of these and unpack them, but one was to take this 
formulaic approach to marriage and sex and relationships and kind of promise if you just stay sexually pure now and you court and don't date according to the quote sinful ways of the world you'll get married to your spouse and have endless wonderful sex for the rest of your life <laughs> people maybe didn't word it that way but that's kind of the message a lot of people took and then there's some people going you know what i got married and it didn't turn out the way i thought it was going to it was harder it was difficult there was still temptation there's other people going i did everything right and i didn't even find a spouse who wanted to marry me so i think some of it is overblown and just frankly what's the word like melodramatic a lot of it is and people just use that means of communication today to try to shame the other side and to make some kind of point to silence people but I don't want to just say that's the only piece because I think there really were some genuine mistakes in the broader purity culture that need correcting. So in some, it's funny. I just wrote a blog I'm posting tomorrow called Purity Culture. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Oh, there you go. And there's some good from purity culture. We could talk about that, but there are certainly some missteps that we have to address and not ignore. So my point is like, let's have a measured response right move forward yeah that's exactly what i thought and you know i was so struck because I, I i do think the tendency these days is to just overblow especially anything that tends toward traditionalism you know whether it's in the political realm you know the the tendency is to blow out of proportion the evil of the the founding fathers and you know if we can point out the evil of the church and all these things so even with fellow conservatives that were bringing up this thing and just making it sound like it was the worst thing ever when i compare it to the onslaught of the sexual revolution and what that has caused it almost seemed like you know someone who has an infestation of rattlesnakes in their basement and they're worried and calling the guy to come spray for roaches, you know, and it, and it, and to me, it just felt just so out of bounds. So I actually came across this article by Shane Morris. You might know him over at a break point with yeah. John Stone street. Yep. And he had written about this, uh, I guess a few months back. And when I saw the article, I was like, man, he nailed exactly what I was feeling about this response of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And he, he referenced the screw tape letters written by CS Lewis, where he saw the, the scene, your demon instructing his understudy, he says, in the diabolical strategy to, quote, direct the fashionable outcry of each generation of humans against the vice of which it is least in danger. Wow. And he said, the game, says Screwtape, is to have them all running about with fire extinguishers whenever there is a flood and all crowding to that side of the boat, which is nearly already gun well under. And I think to me, that's what it, that's what a lot of these reactions to felt, felt like is just, man, we, we, the, fl there's a flood and we, we got fire extinguishers and we're calling for people to put out a fire and we're just missing, we're missing it here. And I think what you said is exactly right. And I do want to talk about some of those items where purity culture did get it wrong. But to me, it felt like on the balance of scales, it was completely unbalanced. And then it was, like you said, picked up by those with an agenda in, in the kind of the secular culture. And we'll get there in a minute. But maybe we could f start out by first describing what are some of those things that you saw that might have missed the mark in the and, it, and it's difficult to really even define purity culture clearly. That's right. But if you could kind of, you know, just in a rough sense, say what it was, was and, and maybe the at least the extreme versions of it that kind of led people in the wrong direction. You know, it is really interesting, Seth, that as I read some of the books and studies, 
it's like people have no collective memory of how the church has dealt with challenges from the sexual revolution, and they think it all started in the late 90s and 2000s with Joshua Harris's book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, Why True Love Waits, and like the silver ring thing. I mean, my dad was speaking on college campuses in the 70s, giving a talk called Maximum Sex, and then in the 80s, led this huge Why Wait campaign, much of which was taken by the Why True Love Waits campaign and changed and adapted and added certain things to it. And it's like people have forgotten some of the broader ways the church has responded to the sexual revolution. So purity culture, the way it seems to be used, though, tends to indicate about maybe mid to late 90s into like the 2000s. And this is the time when when the Internet became much more accessible. I think what drove this was not only a divorce culture from the 80s, people looking back going, gosh, relationships did not work out. There's an epidemic of divorce in the 80s. We got to do something different. I think there was pornography became much more accessible. And the church just tried to respond to say, all right, how can we keep our kids pure and fall into the pressures of this increasingly sexualized culture? So I think the motivations, as far as I'm aware, and everybody I know in this movement, I think the motivations were all good. I just think there was a lack of balance and naivete about it. Now, Joshua Harris's book did not define purity culture. There are a lot of other people that said the same things. He just had a great title (laughs) that released at the right time, and he told some memorable stories. He's a good writer. So it really kind of filled a niche of what some people are looking for a simple formulaic way to keep our kids pure from the sin, ungodly, sexualized culture. Uh, that's really good. And you said, so So for you, the problem was in the tight formula. Is it too much of an if-then type? Like, how, how do you think they could have fixed it and done a better job of that? Well, let, let's start by diagnosing some of the problems first and then jump to maybe what a more balanced sure. biblical sexual life would look like. I think there's a range of of problems. One, uh, like I mentioned earlier, it was very formulaic. If you do A and B, you will get C. And life doesn't work that way. Uh, Number one, we have original sin and brokenness and sexual abuse, and we just bring baggage into relationships that was often downplayed. And second, you know, the Bible doesn't promise that you'll have um, a, a spouse that will necessarily commit to you for the rest of your life. I mean, it's not a promise Scripture gives, and we made promises above and beyond what Scripture says. I think we also overplayed marriage, as if marriage is the solution to uh, individual loneliness and the prize of remaining sexually pure. Well, I think people got married thinking sex is going to be easy and marriage is simple and people were totally unprepared for the difficulty and the challenges of married life of which we could talk about so almost took like a fairy tale kind of approach to the prince sweeping away the princess and living happily ever after and just setting people up for failure so i think that was a part of it i i I think singleness was never discussed and part of the problem with that is you get into Uh, millennials and Gen Zers now, people are getting married later. Many people aren't even getting married. Not to mention that scripture talks about singleness and marriage as being equal ways of knowing and loving 
the Lord and contributing to the kingdom just wasn't that balanced in purity culture. And I also think there were somewhat simplistic responses given, like if you just make this pledge or wear this purity ring, you'll be sealed for the rest of your life. And the reality is the studies show that somebody who takes a purity pledge, they're likely to have sex 18 months later, have less sexual partners, so that's positive. But after about five years, it's really somewhat indistinguishable whether somebody took a purity pledge or not. So I think it was an unbalanced, formulaic, simplistic, yet well-meaning approach to help young people that, you know, the other, the other criticism I would make that is actually very interesting, and this isn't unique to me, but in a book called Making Chastity Sexy, uh, the author says, what's ironic is in Western culture, sex sells everything from cars to burgers to new shoes. And part of the purity movement was, yes, we'll use sex to sell something, but it's abstinence. <laughs> so we kind of use the formula of the wider culture and use the forms of that in ways that it maybe come back to bite us that weren't fully balanced on what a biblical sexual ethics should look like. Now, there's more criticisms than that, but I think those are some of the main ones worth citing and reflecting on. Well, yeah, that's a helpful helpful diagnosis there, I think. One, one of the first one you mentioned sticks out a bit because that's, that's the one that people, that at least that I've noticed in the articles um, responding to purity culture, tend to talk about the, the formulaic nature of it and how it really set them up for failure. Um, and I, but I noticed many of them, at least a couple of them, specifically the one that you posted with that young lady, I got the sense that she was saying because there were exceptions, therefore there's no rule at all. And, and and the, the idea is like, well, if there's no type formula, there's no generalities either. And that was one of the things I tended to see is like this misunderstanding of maybe even, you know, the, the tendency to misread Proverbs as promises, as somebody has said, rather than um, yeah. than tendencies and, and ways of wisdom, which tend to lead in a certain direction rather than formulaically entailing certain results. How do we maybe acknowledge that over formulaic approach, but at the same time, not throw away the the true generalities and the proverb type approach to life that does say when you do A and B, it tends to lead to C. I think that's the trick. And I think you're asking the exact right question. So I'll, I'll tell you how I responded to something that I probably wouldn't have responded in the same way when I was 21. So to be honest with you, as I look back at Joshua Harris writing this book at 21, and becoming kind of world famous within certain circles, I kind of think, man, thank God some things I said at 21 <laughs> weren't put in a book and put on a stage. Or, you know, I'd be set up for criticism as well. What did I know at 21? So I have a lot of sympathy for him. Now, a young man asked me just this week at a conference, he said, how can I pray for my future wife? Now, my response now is different than what I would have given two decades ago. One, as I said, rather than praying first for your specific wife, I would begin to pray that God makes you into the kind of person that is worth marrying. Look within first to who you are, your character, your spiritual disciplines, your life, etc. So rather than trying to find somebody, become somebody worth marrying. 
I said, second, look at biblical descriptions of what the kind of spouse the Bible describes you should be looking for. So in Proverbs, there's a proverb that says, you know, something in effect of better, what is it, about a, a gold ring in a pig's snout than a woman who lacks discretion? Yeah, right. And the same thing could be said of a guy who lacks discretion or is controlling. It's not just uniquely picking on women, but the point being, don't sacrifice character and just look for beauty on the outside. So I said, when looking for the spouse, you've got to think about wisdom and about character and what the purpose of marriage even is. And then third, I said, what you should be praying for is that whether or not you do find this spouse, because the Bible doesn't promise God will necessarily give you everything you're asking for, that whether you get this spouse or not, that you would love God and be faithful to him in whatever season he has you in life. If you end up being single like Jesus was, or Jeremiah was, or John the Baptist apparently was, that you would still love God through that season anyways. So to me, that kind of response is hopefully bringing in some balance, saying, hey, if you want a spouse someday, that would be a good desire God has given you. Make sure you're play, praying scripturally. Make sure you look at your own life. But make sure you're also saying to God, I will submit my will to yours no matter what. And I don't think the purity culture always added that third component. Mm. Because life, you know, it says in Peter, life is about we have suffering and there's hurt and there's pain. And we can't script out our life. So that sense of just laying down our desires to the Lord is a way of taking some of the good of purity culture, but also bringing in some balance and saying, okay, let's look at marriage as sacrifice for loving God and another person, not just having endless sexual bliss as was sometimes promised to people. Hmm, that's Man, that's really good. You know, some people lately have been calling it sort of the sexual prosperity gospel. Yeah. And I think that tightly formulated thing is, it is in many ways... I think parallel to the prosperity gospel, which, you know, the I think it was John Wesley that he complained that when he would teach Christians good principles, they would live by those godly principles and they would end up getting wealth and their heart would be led away by the by the wealth from God. So he said he was kind of in this, sure. this tight spot because those biblical principles do tend to lead us in, in directions that do typically work for our good. But when you say, if this, then that, and you be, and you go after that as your main thing, it tends to set you up for disappointment. And so it's really, I think it's a kind of a subtle difference, but a really, really, really important distinction to understand that, you know, man, there is wisdom. And, and Michael Brown wrote an article for The Stream and where he talked about how that even the world understands wisdom in that sense in that you know life insurance for instance is based on you know are you a smirk or are you a drinker do you take care of yourself are you glutton you know that we we understand that intuitively there are uh, probabilities involved and there's a ways of life that lead to certain um, ends by and large and I think even here and you have I've heard you give a talk on um, the the dangers of pornography at the uh, immersion conference every summer which is one of my favorite talks on that by the way if you're listening we we will link that under our uh, episode, and you should really check the check it out when you get a chance. But I know even in that talk, you talk about 
you know, the consequences for our actions, that even though there's grace and, and God can step in and, and redeem anything, which sometimes gets left out of purity culture as well, there are still oftentimes consequences that we have to deal with in the area of sex and sexuality. And that actually, I think it's an article you've referenced or somebody else from the camp reference about the church ladies. Yeah. And how the promise of secular culture that if you sleep around with someone different every night, that's real fulfillment. But the biblical, actually, the biblical view on sexuality might be even winning out in the the data stat world, um, even in secular resources where they understand this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this is a really interesting dynamic related to a question that you sent earlier. Namely, who is having the most and the best sex? Now, Interestingly enough, the script of our larger culture is that the biblical sexual ethic is controlling, it's old-fashioned, it's boring, and it's just this drab existence. Who would want to be married to one person and, for lack of a better illustration, have the same flavor of ice cream every single night? Like, that's how it's painted. Yet there is some significant research that actually says... When somebody follows the biblical pattern for sexuality, waits to be sexually active until marriage, and then stays sexually faithful to one person of the opposite sex for life, that person is actually most free. And there's some good data that says it's actually when there's trust, when there's commitment, when there's a deep relationship that's built, somebody is free to experience sexuality in the way that God design them to experience it. And this is something people both inside and outside the church need to hear, because sex is good, and it's beautiful. And if we live in God's world, and he made it not only to fill up the earth, and not only to help propagate the species, but he wants us to enjoy it, then the most life-giving kind of sex somebody can have is living in accordance with God's design. That's true. But that's also not the whole story. I think sometimes the uh, purity culture could be criticized for saying, actually, the world thinks it has the best sex. Come to us. We've got the best sex. And again, using sex to sell sex. Right. And the problem, the problem with that is, is that's not how the Bible approaches sexual purity. It doesn't say be sexually pure because you'll have the best sex. It says be sexually pure because this is one way you honor God with your bodies. The scriptures say be holy because I am holy. And yet as a result, when we tend to live the way God wants us to, there's a kind of blessing that comes from this. I got an email just last week from somebody, Seth, that was interesting. And she said, basically, I've been in a lesbian relationship for 20-some years my partner died, and it was a, I, I don't remember words she used. She said it was a fulfilling, wonderful relationship. We loved each other. She said, but now I really feel sense that I want to follow the Lord. What do I do moving forward? Am I condemned to this single, miserable life? What are my options? And I thought, gosh, of course people who aren't living the way God wants us to live are not necessarily in miserable, painful, unfulfilling relationships. Hmm. That's the only narrative we're telling, and it's about her personal fulfillment. Then why follow the biblical sexual ethic? But if we actually say, okay, wait a minute, we follow the biblical sexual ethic because it's good, and God's commands are to bless us as a people, 
And in fact, marriage and singleness are about sacrifice and loving other people and being the kind of people God wants us to be. That's a very different narrative and balance that's often brought. So basically, in answer to the question, I think we want to highlight that there is a life-giving goodness and a beauty to God's design for sex, but we don't want to use sex to sell sex and say, follow the Christian pattern, then you'll have the best and the most sex. If we leave it there, that's an incomplete, potentially destructive narrative when things don't work out as simply as we've told people it will. Oh, that's so good. And it, and it, we had a Christopher Yu on recently on the show as well. And he, he said a lot of the same stuff you're saying as far as the important starting point, I think, is is really having a developed, broad Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, and then kind of building your higher up elements on those foundations. And when you try to adopt kind of this cultural framework as your starting point, the life is about me and, and happiness is um, being sexually fulfilled and try to build on that like a Christian artifice. <laughs> it just doesn't tend to go well. And you, you end up with situations like this um, where your your people just, it doesn't work out like that. And so I think that's a really helpful, helpful diagnosis and reminder to, we need to be biblical and careful when we um, teach these things, even as youth pastors, not to present something that's more rosy than the Bible actually does, and also not to to make us desire things that God doesn't necessarily want us to desire in that self-seeking way, but understand the the primary centrality of Christianity is to come and die, and then God gives us good gifts on that when we understand His design. And so that's helpful. So I want to move into just a little bit of something you said earlier. You said many have co-opted this and utilized it kind of for less than positive reasons. And that's that's another element that I've seen with this is the mainstream media, of course, has picked up on this and, and people, kind of progressive Christians, and they've sort of utilized this not only to reject kind of the the missteps of purity culture that you described, but really just biblical sexual ethic altogether. And I think that's one thing, if you're not careful as a Christian, to make those distinctions, you could be taken in by this movement and kind of swept into it. Do, are you seeing that? And is there something you'd want to say as a as maybe a, a warning to be careful on how you define purity culture and which parts you reject and which parts you want to hold on to from a biblical perspective? I, I think part of my warning would be to people to make sure that we're not responding just emotively and from hurts and from bad experiences with the church or an individual that clouds the way we can see what the biblical sexual ethic actually is. And, you know, there's some people that have experienced some genuine hurt from authorities in their lives, giving them a message that just wasn't complete and wasn't helpful. So I understand why some people are like, the sexual ethic has failed, and they're tempted to throw it all out. That's just a natural human response when you've been hurt. Mm. But I just want to encourage people to go, okay, wait, wait a minute. Slow down. Let's process the hurt. Let's put this into perspective. But let's make sure if we reject this biblical sexual ethic, we're not rejecting a straw man. We're not rejecting a well-intentioned but misguided movement that we're actually taking to heart what Jesus and Paul and the scriptures teach about sexuality. That's my biggest encouragement. And I also encourage people, I'd say, look, uh, don't just take somebody else's word for this. I think there's a ton of people that see a post on Twitter and they weigh in really quickly 
they read one article and they believe what one person says. I mean, I've been reading people up and down all sides of this issue, and I kind of grew up during a lot of the purity culture, so I have a pretty significant background in this. And I want to listen to the critics and say, okay, what fair points are you raising? And you know what, Seth? They raised some fair points that have made me rethink myself some of the sexual ethic that I taught mostly in the past, but even today going, okay, is this balanced? Is this biblical? Where did I get this idea from? Well, I'm going to take it back to Scripture. What does Scripture teach? And examine this, like it says, you know, the Bereans examine the Scripture daily. So do your homework, read both sides, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, and make sure that we're not rejecting a straw man if you reject the biblical sexual ethic. Don't reject a straw man. You owe it to yourself and other people in your life to do better than that. That's good advice right there. So as we kind of go into the second half here, I know we don't have a ton more time, but this part, I wanted to move into basically, you know, Josh like I said, was made the documentary, started kind of recanting his ideas. And then he came out with an announcement saying he, he and his wife were getting divorced. And then, and I actually saw there was an article and I can't remember, I feel like it was for Sojourner, um, which I believe is kind of a leftist theological magazine. Um, and I had read, this was just maybe a week and a half ago, right before I reached out to you, but I read it uh, with my wife and, and I said, you know, in this article, it seems like to me he's on a uh, trajectory either toward progressive Christianity or maybe toward throwing out Christianity altogether. And I said, I, this doesn't seem like it's going to end well, just the kind of language he's um, sharing in this interview. And then the more cynical side of me, and you can rebuke me for this, Sean, <laughs> but um, the more cynical side of me was like, man, this dude is setting up like a beast marketing campaign. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, he's going to come out with a book soon and be on all these interviews on kind of mainstream media. And I don't know his journey. And, I, and I've heard a little bit of it. And I know there's probably a lot of hurt there, and I don't mean to demean that and make it small. But at the same time, I know that when I was wrestling with doubt uh, for many years, and it was very painful, it was not a, not a fun thing at all. And this is just me, and it's a bit anecdotal, and so I don't necessarily want to apply it to, to everybody. But I didn't want to necessarily wrestle with it in public. It was, it was something that I was trying, I was striving, I was finding anybody I could to help me to come to a better understanding, better knowledge, but it wasn't something I wanted to broadcast. And I do, I do notice like in the Bart Ehrman case, and again, I don't, I don't know his heart, but it just seemed to me he, his story played well for selling books in the mainstream media and whether he meant for his deconversion to end up in that or whether they just picked it up and he kind of let them use it. You know, that's, I, I don't know. I don't know his heart, but I, I just, I knew, I told my wife, I said, if, if, if he ends up doing that, I think, he's going to be something of a hero in the mainstream culture. And I just didn't see it going well. And then, and then just last week, I guess he posted on Instagram uh, that he had, you know, quote unquote, fallen away from Christianity, basically a deconversion story. And it really made me sad. It broke my heart because I understand I've, I've been so close to that. I, I was close to that many years ago that I understand the pain of it. And I understand the feeling of what that would be like in that situation. So no part of me was happy, but I thought, man, it's really sad. And I'm praying that he kind of comes back and wake up, wakes up from it. But his, his kind of language at the end that he was hopeful in it and that he was actually excited about it. And he didn't want Christian friends to call him because he had made peace with this decision and was moving forward and looking forward to this movement made me think, you know what? I, I don't know if there's, 
merely intellectual doubt going on here. It seems like emotional, maybe even volitional. I'm not sure, but what what would you suggest to us? You can rebuke me for maybe reading into his <laughs> motivations too much, but uh, what would you say to, what can we learn from that as Christians and how can we respond when we see things like this happen? Well, gosh, it's really hard to know somebody's motivations and why they do something. I don't know, Josh. We talked on the phone two decades ago for like five or ten minutes and have never met him in person. I I think we could rightly question the public way this grieving process has happened and the effect on other people, uh, the wisdom in that. But on the flip side, he wrote a public book and lived a public life and probably felt like he needed to make these things known publicly that he owed it to his audience. So, you know, I trust that he's probably trying to process this in the right way and don't disparage him. It is interesting on any account, his job now is to be a professional marketer. That's what he does. If you go to his website, he works on helping people publicly tell their stories. So this is just a natural result of the world we live in. It's true for you. It's true for me. Are all of us crafting this story and trying to put our lives in a certain light for the public to view us a certain way, I mean, that's a fair question to ask everybody. So I don't disparage you asking that question because that's distinctly his job. And if you keep that in mind and you read his post very carefully and look at the pictures, he is trying to tell a story. So given that he's a pastor, given that he's a writer and a natural communicator, I'd be surprised if he doesn't have a book coming out in a year and a half. I mean, the guy is a communicator. He clearly feels like he was in the wrong, and now he's in the right and is freed and has to make a living and now wants to make an influence. So I'm sure he'll come out and write a book in due time and publish it. I'd just be surprised if he didn't. I just, you know, bottom line, Christians, we need to ask these kinds of questions, not only of other people but of ourselves. Am I crafting a narrative about myself that's not really true? How am I grieving disappointment and failure in my life? Is it biblical? Is it wise? If anything, watching what Joshua is going through is an encouragement to me to go, okay, is this biblical? How am I approaching this? And to look within first, rather than to publicly criticize a guy who just clearly Really, if you watch that video, he has been grieving this for a long time. Now, the one lesson, mm. one big lesson I think we do need to, to take away from this as a church is the guy writes a book at 21, invited on every TV show, radio show, stage, is given a platform at 21 years old, and then becomes a major pastor, and then goes back to seminary in 2015. This whole story is upside down, and it's not just his fault. Partly, I want to say, wait a minute, who are the mature adults in his life to say, okay, wait a minute, let's look closely at this book you're publishing. Are you ready emotionally and spiritually for this kind of stage? Do you have spiritual and theological depth? Because one thing I know, Seth, is that people don't have theological depth and commitment tied to what the scripture teaches, then when challenges come, whether it's from some progressive movement or whether it's from some atheist movement or you name it, if the depth isn't there, people are going to get swayed. So that's a big lesson to take away from this is before as a church, we start giving people a platform. I mean, we do this with athletes. Somebody is an NBA or NFL star. We 
put him on stage, give him a book deal, make him a hero. And I go, whoa, slow down. These people are fallible. And they're human beings. Let's operate under a different system of rules than maybe our larger world does. That's definitely the last time I think we need to take away from it. That's great. Well, this is probably going to be my last question because I know you got to run after this. You know, I think with this move by him, I know many, many young Christians probably get some kind of sense like, man, Christianity is kind of falling in the West and people are walking away left and right. You know, you kind of get this feeling like, man, do they know something we don't? And I, and it feels like a lot of people lately have been leaving, not really because, you know, something has come up that showed the resurrection didn't happen or, you know, the gospels aren't reliable, but it, it seems to center more around these cultural issues of, you know, LGBTQ stuff, political stuff. And, and it seems like the kind of the postmodern uh, sweep is coming through our nation and, and dragging people either into progressive Christianity or a, away from faith altogether, more so than like 10 years ago when it seemed like a Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett type book that they read. What do you say as someone who's very much involved in training people up, young people and youth pastors, how do we how do we help in this kind of context to strengthen people's faith and, and not kind of leave them open to just getting swept into the mania that's happening? I think the key point you said is that it feels like more people are leaving the faith tied to this issue. Right. But it feels that way because we live in a world constantly li- looking for the newest news story. We also have a broader world that's looking to highlight certain stories like the Josh Harris story that play into the hands of the progressive movement. Uh, for example, I mean, Josh Harris was covered in publications around the world. Well, because it fits the narrative that he left this sexual fundamentalist conservative ethic and embraced a progressive one. I'm actually working with some of the publishers behind the original Why True Love Waits campaign to completely launch a new sexual ethic for the church. You think they're going to cover me doing this story? No. Oh, yeah. You'll be right on CNN, bro. (laughs) About it. They're not going to cover it. And partly because it doesn't fit the narrative they're looking for. Just like my friend Jay Warner Wallace, cold case detective, atheist to Christian. And what happens? He's tried endlessly to get TV shows. And he says, basically, you can do a story on the resurrection about Jesus as long as you don't conclude that it's true. (laughs) So we have to remind people that I don't think a huge majority of people are turning away from a biblical sexual ethic. We have the stories of Tony Campolo, Jen Hatmaker, Joshua Harris. But in the big picture things, I'd remind people how many voices are staying solid and staying consistent and owning up to our failures past and trying to move forward in a way that's consistent with Jesus. So because of our news cycle, it's bias and how much they're looking for some new story to talk about. It makes it feel like people are abandoning the sexual ethic, you know, left and right. And some are, but I think a lot of those who leave were never really there in the first place as term is recognizing what scripture actually taught. There is a large constituency of Bible-believing, loving, and gracious Christians who are not abandoning the fold. So I would point towards this generation two things. I'd say, number one, look at the heroes of the faith staying consistent 
even when they have reason to leave. Like this girl, this soccer player who was told to, if she wanted to be on the U.S. World Cup team, she had to wear a, an LGBTQ pride flag. And she said, I just don't feel comfortable wearing this. It goes against some of my core Christian teachings. She's kicked off the team, or at least not allowed to be on the team because that and booed now everywhere she plays. Well, students need to see this example of somebody. She's loving, she's gracious, and she's standing firm. Now, Breakpoint covered that story, but no one else in the mainstream media covered that story because they don't want somebody who's a Christian to be portrayed as a victim. They want Christians to be the victimizers. Right. Victimizers. So let's help students have some perspective here, share stories of people that are standing strong and standing faithful, and then bring them back to what Scripture teaches and help them have a genuinely biblical sexual ethic. Boom. Well... Thank you, Sean, man, so much for coming on. It's been a privilege and a lot of fun. Man, hopefully we'll have you back on to set us straight on some stuff in the future. Ah, well, <laughs> let's do it. Thank you for speaking boldly on the issues you speak up on this podcast. I think you and Nerva have a very unique, fresh voice for a number of reasons. So keep speaking truth, but doing it lovingly and biblically and graciously, and God's going to keep using you. So thanks for having me on. Thanks, Sean. We hope you enjoyed that awesome interview with Sean McDowell. You can follow him at at Sean underscore McDowell on Twitter. And we'll have all the links to his website and social media in show notes as well. If you haven't yet, we'd love if you could give us a five-star rating with comment in Apple Podcasts. Help us get discovered as people search for Christian apologetics, those searching for more information about the Christian faith. Also, you can support us on Patreon. Again, any monthly donation amount gets you access to our bonus episodes that are there, our interview with Nancy Piercy, interview with the Mountain Prophet, and more episodes to come. You can find us there at patreon.com slash freemindfm. And we'd love to interact with you on Instagram and Twitter at freemindfm and on our Facebook page, Freemind Podcast FM. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.